Hi, Stella. Hi there. We're here to talk about our book, When Kids Say They're Trans, A Guide for Thoughtful Parents. That will be out in September. We can't wait. Yes. And uh, if you pre-order the book, you'll also be able to join us for a live free webinar. It's called Do's, Don'ts and Damage Control. Yeah, and we thought we'd do a webinar, a very practical webinar based upon our book about what parents can do, what parents perhaps shouldn't do, the don'ts, and also damage control because so many parents ended up in this before they knew anything about gender and there's a lot of damage control that kind of needs to be done. So we, we address that issue with a webinar on Sunday, uh, 27th of August at 1pm Eastern Time and we're going to leave a lot of room for Q&A so that parents can get their questions in. Right. So if you want to steer your child into a more thoughtful place, maybe away from social and medical transition, these do's and don'ts and damage control will really help you out. So go to whenkidssaythertrans.com and click on the banner that says special pre-order offer to register for this live Zoom event. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Good afternoon, my lovely Stella. How are you? Good. It feels ages since we've just had the two of us. In a, I know. In a, <laughs> I've missed you, Sasha. I know. I've missed you too. We've been so busy with guests, um, yeah. but it's really nice to kind of have our our one-on-one time. Yeah, I, I do miss it. And when we have it, I always feel great afterwards. I just, yeah. I just, I suppose I've become accustomed to your face, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> and me accustomed to your face and voice. I remember before we started doing this podcast, every time I heard you in an interview or like on your film, I just was like so enamored by your voice, ah. but I get to talk to you all the time now and it's amazing. <laughs> that's, so, that's lovely. Yeah, that's it really is. Lovely. What's I've, new in Stella land? Well, you know, I've been I've been in a kind of zone of recovering from the the conference for a while because <laughs> that that has been it's been lovely. It's been lovely being able to kind of just hang out and go for lunch with people and maybe for a little while not talk about gender and Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's been nice. I've been doing um a few bits and pieces on my Substack. Had a great Q&A there recently and I'm going to have a conversation with Alistair Gunn about what parents need to know to help themselves. Because oh. I think we've talked so much, and you will know this, we've talked so much about the ROGD kid. And of course, our book is coming out soon. But we, mm. we haven't talked so much about parents of ROGD. Like, I know that we've talked a lot about the trauma they've gone through. But what about the traits? And what about how they can impact the situation? You know what I mean? So we're going we're gonna yeah. to chat about that, me and Alistair. So that should be interesting. How about That's yourself? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm you know, settled in my house, came back from the conference. It was amazing. I mean, honestly, it was such a powerful professional experience because unlike most professional conferences that can be a little dry or, I mean, there was so much energy. There was so much 
collaboration and excitement. Yeah. It was so powerful. And I got a bit of a sinus infection, so I came home and had to recover from that. Uh, but I'm feeling much better now, kind of getting back in the swing of things. And um, for me, you know, something that I'm thrilled about that I've been working on for my membership group is yeah. a kind of onboarding system. Because some some feedback I've gotten from parents is that Subscribestar where where I have all of my parenting resources, it's kind of like a Facebook feed, right? So it's just a chronological okay. posting of yeah. new content, new videos, whatever. But it's a bit hard to navigate. So I've yeah. created um, something called an archives document. It's a one page with links to every post and titles so that parents can go to one sheet and like research Brilliant. the topic they want. Like if they're a parent yeah. of a boy, they can type in the word son or boy or boys or males oh, and find excellent. every post I've ever done about boys or social transition or self-help or whatever. So um, it's been huge and I've created this giant onboarding video to help families navigate the Subscribestar website, how to update their preferences, how to change their username, how to get on our Discord channel. So it's been a long process in the works, but that's going to be, it might be out by the time this episode airs, Excellent. but that's a huge project that we've been working on and I'm thrilled. So it'll make it a lot easier to kind of move around in that platform and find Brilliant. what people are looking for. Because so many parents are specific about what they want. So it's going to be yeah. really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. It's going to be great. We're so excited. Registration is officially open for our weekend of workshops in Annapolis, Maryland, September 21st through 24th. You can visit whenkidssaytheirtrans.com and click on weekend of workshops to find more information. We've had some really, really special events so far and we're really looking forward to this one in September. Yes, and if you've attended previous events, please know this is going to be all new material, workshop style, based on our new book, When Kids Say They're Trans. So we hope to see you there and check our website for more information. So today we are continuing to talk about schools. I mean, this is a huge topic that a lot of people are interested in, and we really we became aware that teachers and counselors themselves feel lost. Like we know parents often feel lost with this stuff, but what about school personnel? What about school staff? And so, you know, as part of our education series, we want to just talk a little bit about if you are a teacher, if you're a counselor and you're, you're encountering some of these things, what do you do? How do you go about it? How do you maintain your relationship with students while also being mindful about closing doors for their identity exploration. So yeah, that, that's the, that's the idea. When I, I, I give quite a few talks in schools and so often after the talk, at the start of the talk, they're generally very quiet. It's, I've really noticed an arc mm. and then I leave a lot of room for questions towards the end and they come fast and thick at, at the end. They don't come near me at yeah. the beginning with questions because they're literally, they feel way out of their depth and very intimidated. And so many people give me a very heartfelt thanks, which isn't usual after a talk. Well, you mm. do, you get nice <laughs> thanks. That was very interesting stuff. But you get a very, very heartfelt from teachers, from school counsellors, from principals saying like, I was really all over the place about this issue. And I think, you know, people are sometimes quite harsh in schools. I think in fairness, it came in like a rocket and yeah. they haven't been given training. They they want to just teach or they want to be a school counsellor. Yeah. They don't, they, 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 this has been landed upon them and it feels like they're really 
quite in the centre of the political situation. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. as much as sports people, I often feel, they just want mm. to talk about rugby or cycling. Mm-hmm. It's their thing. And they mm-hmm. no more want to get into this kind of sociological commentary or psychological understanding. And it's been imposed upon them. And I feel an yeah. awful lot of them feel, I just want to do the right thing. I want some yeah. guidance about what is the right thing. And nobody seems to agree with what is the right thing. And frankly, the, the guidance I've got is, is quite scanty. It's it's not very, Yeah. it doesn't feel very attuned to where I'm at in my school. That's the most common feeling I get from, from teachers. And I don't have them. You worked in a school, didn't you, for, mm, for a long mm-hmm. time? So you'd know the kind of, the vibe of working in a school. Yeah, and I think it kind of depends on the school and the school district. And and I'm happy to talk about my experience. But I think before we before we jump into those details, let's say there's a teacher or a school counselor. I mean, school counselors are more likely to have been exposed to concepts around yeah. gender and gender identity than a teacher. But let's say generally a school staff or school personnel is episode number one of Gender A Wider Lens. They've learned oh, yeah. it here. They know nothing about okay. you're very all welcome this stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> how do we how do we just kind of ground them in some basics so that we can build on our discussion yeah so what, what I would we like, say for me i would like um any teacher or counselor who's never really listened to much about gender to know that there's a few conflicting theories there's a theory that you know gender identity is within you it's like your soul it lives within you it's not something physical but it's actually something that might make somebody feel compelled to present in a different manner. For example, a girl might, a born biological girl might feel compelled to present as a boy. People who believe in that theory feel that it's it's the job of all the involved adults to, um, you know, facilitate this transition as fast as possible, almost as if the person is, is gay, but needs it acted out by everybody in the room. And so that that is one strong theory. There's another theory that it w- would be that, um, you know, queer theory, which is more along the lines of you you, you can um, um, present in any way you want, and our job is just to allow for a free society that people who want to present can present. And then there's a third theory, which is more where I land. I hope I'm not going too fast, but a kind of developmental model of understanding where some people develop. A condition that's described as gender dysphoria it presents as gender related distress and these people really fixate on the fact that they want to be uh some somebody else and that person has a different um embodiment and they want to for example a girl might want to present as a boy be seen as a boy and all their all their distress gets channeled into that and there's a lot of ways we can kind of fixate our our, our distress on one thing for example, an eating disorder or or other issues. And it is an actual condition, which is often news to people when I when I do present at schools and to school counsellors. Mm-hmm. It is a mental health condition in the DSM. It is acknowledged as a mental health condition. And I think people can sometimes miss that. It's called gender dysphoria and anybody can look it up and look at the criteria and see what's involved. So there's conflicting theories Mm -hmm. about what it is and as a result the schools are left not knowing about these theories but just thinking why is the advice so polarized why is it so different yeah why are so-called experts saying completely different things and i'm just the teacher just trying to follow it that Mm -hmm. is why because the, the 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 theories conflict with each other 
Yeah. And I think to, to add on to what you're saying, teachers, especially if they have been teaching for many decades, they've probably noticed some shifts in the culture, shifts in the way young people are thinking about things like identity, sexuality, gender. And while some of these shifts, cultural shifts seem to be really positive, teachers may also notice that a lot of kids that they know are kind of changing their identity and changing their gender. And I think something that we have become aware is, is that teachers may not understand or school staff may not understand that the way kids' gender identity exploration is responded to by adults can have a pretty profound impact on what happens when they leave school. So there's almost like a social affirmation to medical transition pipeline that teachers may not be aware of. Because yeah. I think, especially in America, and I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but to kind of tie it back into my experience in a school, I worked in a charter school where the sense of community was a really important kind of ethos, like teachers, school counselors, administrative staff, we all were, were meant to build incredibly tight and close relationships with our students. And it was very powerful. It felt like a big family. And in a way that was like really beautiful and positive thing. So in the spirit of being close with students and kind of acting as like a big family, there can be a sense that like, we just want to validate the students. We want to make sure they feel supported and loved and heard, which is great. But you may not recognize that that validation, especially when a young person is experimenting with gender or exploring a new identity, can kind of solidify that identity and almost acts as a way to kind of close doors to the evolution of that identity or the exploration of something else. So when you are a teacher and you are in a school environment that is really encouraging and supportive and connected with the students, um, the easiest thing may just be, let me validate. Let me make sure the kid feels good about themselves. Let me just make sure that the student feels heard and believed. Uh, but it's a bit tricky, right? Because if that means that they're necessarily going to uh, be more likely to medicalize or have a surgery or start a hormonal intervention that may not necessarily be the best thing for them. It's really hard to know, like, what is the role of the teacher or the counselor? Yeah, I think you're, 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 you're hitting on something very important. Schools have changed from being a place to educate and impart knowledge to mm -hmm. being a community that mm -hmm. kind of supports identities and supports the evolution and, uh, and of the, the mental person. health you and know, the development like, yeah. of the person. Mm -hmm. That is interesting because I, 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 I've been studying this quite a bit and I kind of got into kind of studying the, you know, how schools began and schools actually began, funny enough, in the US and it was to teach children to become good biblical scholars that they were they were taught Ooh. originally you know what I mean they mm -hmm. were brought together to learn scripture and become yeah. good purists and Oof. then uh, it went on it went into Europe in France and in Germany and it was very much to create good citizens to create good Christians at the time this is what they were they were doing and um, then it went out into actually you know, creating the whole person and imparting knowledge. But now, in a way, we've come back almost full circle where schools are creating good citizens. They're reflecting the values of society and where we, the teachers are expected 
to teach the children according to the accepted values of societies. Now that mm. is that's kind of interesting because there's plenty mm-hmm. of teachers I know who would have quite radical views of society who who are kind of falling in with the school ethos, but it's not necessarily you know they might teach geography, but like oh, they have their own views of life. Yeah, and yet there's a, a presumption that we all agree with how a good society will live, and we're now going to teach them that. So it's an interesting kind of imposition on teachers and counsellors. Teach them how to be what is accepted as a good um, citizen. It's a kind of nice idea, but it's also, I think, more and more and more, there's mental health has really impacted schools. And I wonder, is there going to come a time where we're going to say, we need a mental health facility beside the school so that schools can do their teaching and the mental health is on campus, but it's yeah. maybe even in the same building, but it's a bit more divided with, because I find so many teachers are talking to me and principals who are saying, I'm doing an awful lot of mental health and I'm a maths teacher and I, I don't yeah. think I'm doing it right. Yes. And I don't know what to do because yes. the, the fair play, the students presume that the adult will know what to do. And so the, 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 I know this isn't quite relevant, but it is relevant no, to how is. schools have got to the place where they've got, where they're yeah. kind of, they're randomly, massively, massively a huge part of somebody's transition is their school life. How did that yes. come to be? It's because so much has been asked of the school teachers. And is that appropriate? I'm, I'm not sure it is because that's not what they trained for. Yeah, for sure. And I remember when I worked in a school, there was this immense pressure for every single teacher to kind of play these dual roles, multiple roles um, as like an emotional support, a mental health support and a math teacher and a after school volleyball coach or, or like yeah. all of these things that teachers are expected to do. And it's it's very tiresome. It feels unfair because teachers are already stretched so thin. So I think, you know, in this in this podcast, we want to almost kind of take some pressure off of the teachers yeah. and also help teachers become aware of how a little a little thing can actually have a really positive impact. It doesn't have to be like this giant overhaul of what's happening yeah. at the school. Um, yeah. So in, in your experience, when you have worked with school staff, what are some kind of important little things that you encourage them to do to support the students without necessarily closing the doors to their identity exploration, which is a normal yeah. part of adolescence. Well, well, one thing is the point you lifted earlier is always something that I kind of rest on quite a lot, which is identity exploration is a natural developmental aspect of adolescence. And that if it gets foreclosed, if it gets foreclosed, mm-hmm. Or if it prematurely lands and fixates and concretizes, it it doesn't bode well for the future. It can be very good at that beginning when they foreclose. They can feel very satisfied. It's very nice to land and become certain and say, this is my identity. The exploration is over. I'm sorted. And it's like mm-hmm. the person has chosen their college course. They know where they're going. There's something very kind of brain satisfying about yeah. saying I'm certain I know where I'm going I know what I'm doing you know what I mean but it's actually that uncertainty is part and parcel of the adolescence experience and it's more appropriate for the adults to pull back from encouraging any sort of solidification of a, of any identity 
that yeah. whether whether they're going to go to this college or that college or study this or study that or go and be a sports star or a dancer or gender or like even their sexual orientation that an exploratory kind of approach is appropriate right up until their early 20s this is what Mm -hmm. they kind of should be doing psychically and this it's like this the teachers know it because they've been working with students for so long but when they hear somebody like myself who's a psychotherapist actually saying this is exactly what they should be doing it's like well I knew it intuitively but now you've said it I feel much more confident about yeah. yeah it's not my job to hurry along a closure and a tying up and put the bow on we've got my identity sorted that is not the adult's job the adult's job is to continue with the expiratory process with kind of nice kind of noises along the same that's really interesting you mm-hmm. know it's great that you're exploring your identity and it's, it's great and I hope I hope you're managing to have some joy in in this process because it's it's going to be the most exciting years of your life do you know yeah. what I mean? As opposed to, that. right, we've got your identity, bang. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. where's the next label? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we can talk maybe even about some kind of specific scenarios because I'm just thinking about my time in the school. There's the very individual like one-on-one where a kid might ask the teacher something specific about changing their name or using their pronouns. Then there's the more broad question about, you know, are parents being notified about various identity explorations the kid is having? Then there's stuff about school policy. So like, I really like the framework you used. So let's say it's, it's more of an individual situation and there's a young person who, let's say, quote, came out to a teacher yeah. with their identity. I love what you said about, well, that's very interesting. You know, it's, this is a time of a lot of exploration. So you know, I always say that the, the, the best response usually lies somewhere in the middle. So neither are you saying, well, that's ridiculous. You're a girl. You can't become a boy. Yeah. I don't believe in that. That's, that's one extreme. The other extreme is, oh, my gosh, you're so brave. I'm so proud of you that you found your authentic self and you're kind of really amplifying this identity exploration. And the middle road might look something like, Thank you for trusting me to share that. That's very interesting. I mean, I I think identity exploration is a long road and it's fascinating that you're here right now. Um, Is this something that you've been able to talk with your family about? Because that seems like an important thing to share with them. So uh, that's another piece that often gets very challenging for teachers. Like when a student is confiding in you, in a way, you really want to honor that because maybe they maybe they selected you as the adult they yeah. trust and you don't want yeah. to trample on that. On the other hand, it's very risky when your relationship with a student might inadvertently build a wedge between that student and their parent, right? So, yeah. so trying to find a way to, you know, appreciate the confidence they showed in you while also keeping in mind the appropriate structure, which is the family is... The family has to make decisions around these things together. So I I think that's one way you can kind of hold that middle ground. I know in Ireland, in the education system, one of the first lines of the of the Department of Education guidelines is the the parent is the primary educator of the child, which which is nice. nice. It's kind of given some respect to them. But I think it's it's very important that what you just rose, what you just lifted there, I think is very important to think about. 
And when I, I, I discuss this in schools, that you can see faces going, oh, God, because I talk about <laughs> triangulation and I yeah. talk about we know we should stay away from triangulation. Triangulation is when one person is the victim, often the, the student. One person is the persecutor. Sometimes it's the, the parent and one person is the savior. And it could be the school yeah. counselor or the, you know, the English teacher that you've confided in. And that being kind of deemed the savior in somebody's uh, somebody's life it can be very heady you can feel yeah. filled with power you can feel i'm going to save this kid they're very distressed i'm the one one kid one adult one important adult in their life and i'm going to be this person and i'm going to be the adult that i should have had when i was a kid and we can really get into that um persona and it can mm -hmm. be very very damaging for the family now, we we all know schools know it, counselors know it. We all know that getting in the way between parents and children is something we do at our peril. Now, if the children are in danger, social services should be called. If it's a difference of beliefs or a difference of values, I would argue that parents should be honored and the child should be honored that they can handle the fact that their parents have different values. It doesn't mean they're in danger. It doesn't mean that, you know, that something frightening is happening. In fact, I'd say the vast majority of us have different values to our parents in some levels. And that, that's yeah. part of navigating family life. You have a sibling who really irritates you because their politics are frankly objectionable, but they're your mm -hmm. sibling. And you, th that's the richness of family life that mm -hmm. you, you handle mm -hmm. that. And so this mm -hmm. idea that this has suddenly become a frightening force that people have to be saved from. It's very yeah. authoritarian. It's very intrusive. And, you know, it's it's dismissing the, the richness and depth that the loving family can give, even when you disagree. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think this is so important because and I want to share a little bit about my time as a school counselor, because I've definitely noticed a concept creep that can exist especially amongst social workers and school counselors and people in the mental health field, especially that conflates um, not necessarily having the right opinion about gender and sexuality issues with literally being a dangerous or toxic or abusive parent. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to kind of confess that I think I was wrapped up in that thinking for some time, even as a school counselor. So one thing I'll share is when I started our school's GSA, Gay Straight Alliance, um, this was a population of students who were kind of coming from lots of low income, working class families, immigrant backgrounds, tended to be a pretty religious population. And I was aware for sure that there were some students I knew who were gay, questioning their sexuality, and that this would be completely not accepted at home. So in order to try and protect the privacy of these students, we named our club with a kind of generic name, like a student advocates club or something like that. And when kids were signing the waiver to get permission to join, it was a pretty general poster. Like this is a place for students to explore self-expression and support one another. And we didn't put gender or, or sorry, we didn't put sexual orientation on the flyer. Oh, did you so know? in hindsight, <laughs> yeah. I now see that that was coming from a really 
positive place, you know? Yeah. And I think when you, when you are thinking about specific students who you know are experimenting with their sexuality or their identity, and you have on the back of your mind this possibility that the family will become very intrusive and maybe pull them out of the group or whatever, you know, it's so easy in my mind to see how with sexual orientation, that kind of protective instinct can occur in the teacher or the counselor. I mean, that's for sure where I was coming from. I had no kids that were explicitly questioning their gender when I thought up this idea of like protecting their privacy. This was about sexual orientation. So yeah. I just want to point out, like, if if you find yourself in this situation with the school, keep in mind that they probably haven't thought very deeply about what the implications are for something like gender identity, where the kid is asking to be called new pronouns and changing their identity at school. This is a totally different thing. So, you know, if I could go back in time, I would have done things very differently, you know, with the way we structured our, our club. But I am aware that that is the kind of impulse behind some of this behavior on the school's part that seems to be like a little bit secretive or something like that. Yeah, when you put it like that, it's it's so understandable. And I, I so get how it's how it emerged. And then I start thinking of Malcolm Clark from the LGB Alliance. He does some really, really good writing. Mm. He's got a substack and he's really interesting. He's a gay man. And um, I remember like we, we were working on we've got a few Genspec school policy samples and it's quite interesting. So we have one for America, one for Canada, one for Ireland, and they all have different cultural kind of emphasis. If you follow me, because mm-hmm. they're slightly different countries, different mm-hmm. kind of cultural. And I remember when I was talking to Ka- Malcolm about these school policies and he was saying, but why have uh, a gay club? You, you should have a club with a purpose. This is encouraging introspection in in teenagers who could probably benefit more from, yeah, of course, tolerance and acceptance and it's supportive and a, a kind of a, an acknowledgement. But if you're going to ask people to be in a gay club, are you asking them, well, where, where are you going with that? Like, you, you mm. in fairness, he, ar- he argues much better than I do. Mm-hmm, he basically mm-hmm. says... Teenagers are flailing around and <laughs> we're all flailing around. Humans are. But with a purpose, like if it was a purpose like um, climate or politics or supportiveness or promoting acceptance, this would give them a lot more focus than just our identity. If you totally. He, yes. He, he completely yes. argued me out of it. And I was like, this is a really good point. You know, mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. asking kind of imagine if we had a club for, um, I suppose, specifically Irish people or people who are this. It's like, well, what are we going to do? Talk about ourselves. Wouldn't yeah. we be better focusing on something that is some sort of common goal? So imagine if it was an Irish club. It could be music. Or it could be, um, mm, you, you know, what I mean, mm-hmm, something that's mm-hmm. beyond the self-identity. Yeah. So anyway, that gave me a whole new concept around it. And I, I think it's a good point. And I think yeah. culturally, I was told, oh, that won't wash in America. And I thought, mm-hmm. really? Could, well, could, could we readdress that? What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think we've touched on this a little bit before, but I think um, when we when we think about the way, for example, 
let's say we, we take the consolidation of a sexual orientation over the lifespan, right? A lot of people will look yeah. back and say, I was really afraid of my sexual orientation. I had a lot of shame about it. So I think the yeah. reason we have these, you know, specific clubs based on identity and self-introspection and self-reflection is because it's an attempt to counteract maybe the unhelpful messages in society, right? But I do think for the most part... Many young people have at least heard somebody somewhere say it's okay to be gay, just be proud to be yourself. And that message is going to filter in. And so, like, I remember being young, a lot of people figured out their sexual orientation and were able to come out without necessarily a club celebrating them. They figure it out, you know, and as long mm. as you have friends who care about you and love you for who you are, you will eventually get over that barrier of. Um, kind of difficulty with it. Now, granted, to be fair, you know, in the D-Trans panel that you did in the GenSpect uh, D-Trans Awareness Week conference, a lot of individuals there, a lot of lesbians said, yes. the shame is real and it's really hard to get over. So I think it puts, I mean, just being aware of all these issues is just important because there are a lot of moving parts. And yeah. if you are a teacher or a school counselor, it's just so crucial to 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 understand that it's not as simple as just having a blanket policy about names and pronouns and that's going to solve everyone's problems. You know, not necessarily yeah. because there may be internalized homophobia going on. There may be a lot of complicated family issues or self, you know, mental health issues. So, um, you know, I don't know if there's a simple answer about things like clubs and how to yeah. structure them. But I do think you know, being able to hold the identity exploration with a light touch and not make too huge a deal of it in either direction is yeah. important. And this kind of brings us to another point, which is I think teachers need to be empowered to get back to what they know how to do best, which is teaching their subject. Yes. So if you're approached with a young person questioning their identity, uh, just as we mentioned earlier, you can acknowledge it, thank them for saying something, and then just redirect back to the real reason that you're there, which is to teach history or geography yeah. or literature or whatever your yeah. job is. So that way you can stay focused on what your competence is in yeah. and not burden yourself with trying to be somebody's psychoanalyst or their yeah. kind of gay pride leader. I mean, there, there's a lot of other better ways for you to spend your energy. Yeah, and if you're a geography teacher and if somebody came out as gay or lesbian or bisexual, I think we told, most teachers would hold neutral spacing. Okay, yeah. You know, we'll get on with our lesson plan because discussing it, where are we going with that? You know, right. it's not relevant to the class. Now, if it's a counsellor, they're in a different position. I do find in, in the, I've given quite a few seminars to just school counsellors, for example, and I find they're in a very lonely position because the school generally says, there you go, you're the school counsellor, deal with it. And everybody in the school knows full well that they are imposing a burden on this school counsellor who's just going, oh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because they can handle all sorts of other things, but this has come in like a rocket. They really feel very out of their depth. And the school are very quick to just look, you know, with interest to, well, the school counsellor is going to deal with this. I'm not. That's right. <laughs> do you That's know? Right. So I think they're mm -hmm. in a very lonely position. And I, I, I encourage people who are school counsellors to 
do a bit of reading. You might be reluctant. You might find it very, very heavy and dense and an awful lot of information. I do think a, a bit of reading around it is essential because it's not going away. It's going to stay in your school. You, you've got to kind of on some level read up about it so you understand the acronyms, you understand the terms and you kind of understand the concepts underlying it. There is plenty of guidance out there. Of course, Genspec does a school guidance, but there's loads of different guidances out there. So you can look at the different ones and see what, what suits you. Now, there are some schools that have uh, regulations and policies. A huge amount of schools don't have regulations and policies. They have a culture, a culture of affirmation or a culture of presumption that we will go with pronouns and names. What's happened with a lot of schools, though, and so many have told me is we went in very happily into the affirmative culture and we uh, changed, you know, uh, the students names as and when they wished and the pronouns. But what has happened is a kind of uh, a tail is wagging the dog now because some of the students are changing names very regularly and some of them are changing mm. pronouns very regularly. Mm-hmm. And it's created an emphasis in the class which is irrelevant to the classroom because we have gone with this idea of whatever they want, they get. So then suddenly it's a new name, it's a new pronoun. Yeah. And the, 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 the other students, and I can understand why, but the other students are kind of alive to the fact that there might be a misgendering because there's a new pronoun and the teacher doesn't know it. So it feels like a continuous kind of gag going on in the schools. Wow. Where, yeah, and the, the teachers are feeling like I'm on eggshells. I got, I misgendered this kid, but in fairness, they've changed the pronouns a few times and I, I got mixed up. And it feels like the, the students are running the show here. And that's what so often the schools are saying. It started really, like yourself were saying, it started in a really good place. It's ended up in this kind of quite combative, you got it wrong, you got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking, this is not how a school, we're meant to be showing guidance and adult, you know, authoritative kind of um, a road before them. And instead it feels like very, as I often say, it's very child-led, not child-centred. And so if the child is leading the way in how gender is uh, treated in the school, arguably the child doesn't have an adult sensibility. It certainly doesn't have the future of the school in their mind. It might not have the greater good in their mind. It might be very much about one specific friend that they have. And it's all about them because they're a kid and they have a child sensibility. So the adult's job, whether they're a school counsellor or a principal or a teacher, is to think of the greater good, to think of the school, to think of the kind of the equilibrium and to realise the strongest role we can give as adults is guidance and a good kind of supportive space where the adults are in charge. And I don't mean it in an authoritarian way, but they're they're kind of they're giving guidance and they're not shying away from their responsibility as adults and letting the children lead because it's a burden on the children's shoulders if the if the children are leading. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. 
For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, GetA. GetA is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach. We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help. Visit GetA at genderexploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. Yeah. And I mean, I hear you saying that. And of course, I agree with you. We have a whole podcast about this. (laughs) But this is really counter to the conventional wisdom that is often being provided in gender related school trainings, which is let the child lead. So if you are a teacher or a counselor and let's say your school has actually, you know, provided trainings and offered reading materials and resources and it comes from the affirmation approach, which is whatever the student's identity questioning is, you encourage the identity questioning, you follow their lead in any way you can, um, and also you socially transition the student. So I think maybe now is a good time to outline what social transition is, and maybe we can give some guidance to teachers who are like, well, we got that training, and we, maybe we tried it, like you said, and we it's a runaway train. And now all the kids who weren't questioning before are questioning now. And we have like 30% of our kids are questioning their gender and we're not sure what to do. So mm. let's maybe touch on that. Um, social transition is a kind of psychosocial intervention. It's relatively new in the world of gender nonconforming children and how therapists and teachers think about them. And social transition is a process by which you change the way you interact with a child as though they really are a different sex. So if it's a female child, you might call her by a male name. You might use he, him pronouns for her. You might allow her to use the boy's restroom. You treat her ostensibly as though she's literally a boy. And social transition is an intervention which has pretty profound impact on the psychological experience of a young person. And often it's being kind of requested pretty strongly and forcefully with a lot of urgency. And sometimes it seems to reduce the distress of the child, but oftentimes does not. And actually seems to exacerbate the self-consciousness of the child because now they really have to play up that role that they're literally a boy. And schools have been using this intervention as though it's very well studied, very well established, um, and in in these school trainings around gender related issues, it's it's prescribed as though it is just the gold standard of what we do when a kid is questioning their identity. And this is a really challenging and problematic thing, in my view, because it can create more problems than it resolves. And like we said earlier, it kind of rubber stamps the identity. So. I just wanted to touch on that and tell me, yeah. I mean, in your school trainings, what have you seen? What have you observed around social transition? One thing I've observed really notably is the presumption in school staff that social transition has a good, strong evidence base supporting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I say there isn't. Not only is there not a strong evidence base, there is not an evidence base. There, no. there is very, no very, studies, very little to kind of nothing to really look at. So we don't know. This is a new intervention. It's come in in recent years. There's nothing long term to refer to. So we've no idea and there's no evidence base. It came in as a theory and it has been um, 
ran with fast. And when I tell this to schools, it's like they are astonished to hear this. Yeah. They are literally astonished to the point you can see some of them frantically Googling in front of me. (laughs) She must be wrong. There must be evidence. And so I always kind of make sure to have, you know, my my, my T's crossed and my, my I's dotted around this. And that's what is crucially important because as Hilary Cass said in her kind of she did a, a great analysis of gender affirmative care in the UK for, for children and she said it's not a neutral intervention you know yeah. it, 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 it does carry an extreme impact if you think about it the, the idea of somebody changing their name changing the pronouns not only will they be going into different sports teams with different changing rooms residential dormitories lots of other things it can change your self-concept and we don't know how much. We don't know mm-hmm. how much. And it won't necessarily make people feel better because it could arguably make them think about their identity a hell of a lot more. It yeah. could arguably make them feel dysphoric about how they're presenting isn't uh, how they look under their clothes. It could mm-hmm. create a gap. It could create a cognitive dissonance between themselves. And it can create so many more problems. It might solve these problems, but it can create yeah. these problems. And so when when schools realize this, they tend to think, well, wh- I remember only last week, like one teacher said, but why are we doing it then? Like if, if there isn't an evidence base, what, why is this happening all over the world? And I was like, well. That's a long question. You should start mm-hmm. listening to our podcast because yeah. it's like, what? why has this intervention come in? And I would argue, you know, a quick answer to that would be, you know, hard cases make bad laws. And often mm. a very, very distressed person was was student zero in the school. That very, very distressed person might have gone on to, to, to medically transition but they created the rules. The rules were created around this person, maybe 2014, maybe 2015, maybe further back. But it was one student who was extremely distressed and a lot of precedents went in with that student. And then the social contagion has happened, which we've kind of well discussed in this in this podcast. And as a result, that kind of those rules specifically for that one student is now for the student body and it was never anticipated just like in sports, they thought, ah, so we'll let one or two in. It's never going to be a big deal. The yeah. numbers are never good. Just like they thought in prisons. They never thought that there would be a contagion. They never thought that the numbers would shoot up. And so now it's an actual issue. But it wasn't mm-hmm. the, the rules weren't created as if there was ever going to be any sort of numbers. And so mm-hmm. it's easy to make exceptions. It's easy to make a policy around a very tiny number of people who might have some other, you know, extremely unusual issue. And you make a policy around it. The school is very happy. Everybody rolls on. It never comes up again because there aren't other issues, aren't other students with that issue. But mm-hmm. now I think the numbers have made it that, oh, my God, they are so not equipped for something yeah. that has happened. I would say quite inadvertently and often quite mindlessly with the presumption that there's a strong evidence base to assure mm-hmm. everybody that this will not only make the student feel better, but it's better for everybody. And yeah. I, I would argue that anybody who's working in a school, especially principals, if you are going to create policies and change policies around um, student safety or students' mental health or students' well-being, well, you need to do an impact assessment in the school and you need to do a risk assessment in the school because you need to figure out how is this going to impact the school body 
in the longer term, because what happens to a 12 year old will be happening to a 17 year old in a few years. If you follow yeah. me, and they have to look to the future and I don't envy them. I think it's really hard. I know. And you bring up a point that's really important. When when I was working in a school, whenever there was a situation, whether it's like a student who it was discovered that they were dealing with self-harm or, you know, unfortunately, a, a suicide or something like that. The school has immense amount of pressure and eyes on them to just do something. God, yeah. Just do something. And yeah. as young and people be seen begin to do it. Yeah. And be make seen it, yeah, and make yeah. it make it announce it. Like yes. have an initiative. We're yeah. starting an initiative. And yeah. so of course, as a lot more young people are starting to question their identities, schools have a great deal of pressure to just show that they're doing something to meet the demand that is changing, to meet the culture where it's at. And I think like so many things come to mind. When we say there's no research on social transition, I'm thinking specifically about the school's impact. But what we do know is that social transition seems to increase the likelihood that the gender identity will stay as is. And the way that's often interpreted and by that's people the old, who... That's the tiny bit of evidence. And it's not really evidence. It's the, just, yeah, it's not yeah, it's great. It's just yeah. kind of uh, yeah. like studies about the kind of out, like the process yeah. of how these yeah. identities are unfolding. And of people who believe in social transition, who are pushing for social transition, they use that information to say, see, affirming identities is good because it's... It's obviously the right choice if this person's going to continue to identify as transgender. But what we actually know from looking at studies over the last, you know, several decades is that a lot of young people may question their identity and then it will come and go as many identity explorations do. Um, So that's kind of one thing which kind of goes back to that affirmation to transition pipeline that we touched on earlier. And then number two, I'm super aware now that I've become much more conscious of, you know, evidence and data. When I was working in the school, there were so many times when initiative was rolled out for which there was no evidence of whether or not it was effective. And it was our job to bring in initiatives, right? Like as the school Mm. counselors, there were a couple of us on campus and every time something happened, they were like, quickly counselors, do something, do something. So we, I mean, we would basically just look up advocacy groups in the local area and bring them in. Never did we evaluate what is the outcome rate of of this training? Does this improve or worsen the impact on students? Like we just didn't even think about it. We were just, we had literally five minutes of our day when we had up to our eyeballs complicated cases to deal with. And we just had to like call somebody and schedule them to come into the school. So this is another challenge that like all of these schools are just find a quick, find a gender organization, quick, do a gender thing. And they're not really thinking about what this means or what the outcome will be. And uh, it's very complicated. And pressurizing, very pressurizing for the school. Like you say, a tragedy happens and then the the, uh, tragedy happened in my kid's local school and immediately the school had to roll out things, which is not appropriate. And they had to be seen to roll out things. And it it wasn't fair and it wasn't, you know, it's too much pressure and it's, it's, it's part of this kind of instant gratification culture. But the 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 issue of the um, the initiatives and the local kind of the local advocacy groups, the local experts that goes back to Stephen Levine's chain of trust. You yeah. presume we all presume the schools presume that the local expert on 
on anything, whether it's gender or whether it's autism or whatever, we just presume they're brilliant and they know more than us. And yeah. in they come. And, you know, there's an awful lot of presumption around um, expertise and that. And th- that's just something to, to be aware of. And not only that, I, I know when I studied, when I you know wrote my book, Bullyproof Kids, I was shocked. And it turns out it's a well-established fact that bullying programs haven't worked out very well in schools. Yeah. They they were brought in and they have not had good outcomes. And that was like, wow, you know, you just presume bringing in a bullying, anti-bullying program that it's going to be good for a school. It, the, the, the results on that has not been good. So our tinkering with the well-being of students, I I don't think has been a brilliant affair. I think schools are lovely places to be these days, but I think that the there are an awful lot of kind of misguided interventions yeah and we can't really talk about this subject of like why are schools taking on these policies why are schools socially transitioning kids without addressing i think the most common belief which is these kids will become suicidal if you don't affirm them And this is such an important and tragic possibility and it's terrifying. And if you think about the experience of a teacher who's just there trying to teach math and they're like, I don't want to be the reason a kid commits suicide. That's terrifying. So, I mean, this is very serious and I want us to give it a few moments. We've done a full episode on suicide and this is something that keeps coming back up over and over because I think this is the most common I guess, piece of terrifying information that is, frankly, quite misrepresented. And I just want to spend a minute talking about this, um, giving it the kind of proper weight that is due. So where should we start? Because people really misunderstand these points. Um, I think an acknowledgement that suicide is terrifying and it's so terrifying we have to up our game. But what yeah. often happens is it's so terrifying, we react reflexively. And I'm just because we're human, you, you no know, yes. other reason. And um, w- w- we need to hasten, you know, slowly when, when suicide is, is in the air. We need to we need to make sure that we know the facts. We need to make sure that we penetrate any kind of half-baked facts and make sure that they are facts. Because, for example, there's a lot of, misinformation around the facts around suicide I think it began with very distressed children perhaps and there was kind of an awful lot of talk around suicide certainly now that gender has been in in the kind of clinics for long enough if you can look at Michael Biggs research from JIDS over in London and this is over a 10 year period four out of 15,000 children uh, died by suicide and every one of those four is, is a terrible tragedy an absolute devastating event that shouldn't have happened but of those four two were receiving treatment affirmative treatment and two were in the waiting list so you can't even extrapolate anything from this you know what I mean other than sorry what was the stat how many four four out of 15,000 out of 15,000 okay yeah four Mm -hmm. out of 15,000 out of Mm. uh, over a 10-year period okay Mm -hmm. and so while this is higher than the average it is in keeping, give or take, you know, it's in keeping with mental children with mental health distress. Yeah. You, you know what yeah. I mean? And so it's not it's not a world where um, we need to make sure that we 
act really fast because it's a very imminent threat that's going to happen very soon. It, it's, that is not the actual facts of the case. The facts yeah. of the case is when people are in mental health distress in any, whether it's anxiety or depression or eating disorders, it is more likely, but it is not something that should throw you off and it, you shouldn't be making decisions that are shaped by something when really it should be the, the full situation as opposed to I'm so frightened of this I'm just going to make quick decisions because we all know sometimes you do in an emergency something's happened and you make Mm -hmm. a quick decision because you had to this is not Mm -hmm. this is not Mm -hmm. this case Mm -hmm. you know what I mean a gender distressed kid is not an emergency around suicide Mm -hmm. yeah and I think sometimes people are so afraid of the possibility that they they may not be slowing down to investigate well what do we know about preventing suicide what do we know factually about this because as as sad as it is you know kids with mental health issues kids with gender dysphoria are not the first population of kids who have struggled with suicidality Mm. or suicidal ideation and you know in in any competent mental health treatment program if there's a young person struggling with suicidality there are kind of like you know treatment plans, safety plans Protocols. that we, we do to help minimize the risk, to help um, get the kid to reduce the chances that, uh, that they will take that step. So there are, I can't think of any other examples where a suicidal young person is given the exact kind of possibly self-destructive thing that they're asking for. Like if a mm. young person is saying, if you let me do so and so thing, I won't kill myself. Like it's usually coming from a place of incredible despair. They're not thinking clearly. They're in a dark place. They hate themselves. So that that is not how we tend to respond when a young person is struggling with suicidality. And that is accepted in every other realm. And that's where I, I think it's very it's worth talking about the kind of the exceptionalism of gender, because schools suddenly get told yeah, yeah. You know, when suicidality comes up with anxiety or, or an eating disorder or substance abuse, we don't respond reactively. We we, we follow the protocol. We follow the system mm-hmm. because that's the most important thing to do is not lose your head. Um, And the exceptional kind of um with gender, it's like everything, you know, put that aside and do this new thing that yeah. doesn't have an evidence base. And that's what yeah. I think you and I are trying to work hard to kind of make sure that people no, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's no mm-hmm. need to, to, to kind of lose your head with anything. It's it's more important to keep your head and keep your, your, your kind of faith in your process than yeah. to presume that this requires different rules because there's mm-hmm. there's nothing quite like gender. I, I do mm-hmm. think it's funny. It's that famous phrase born in the wrong body which has no substance but an awful lot of schools still use it they say but what would it be like to be born in the wrong body and I often say well what does that mean we're born as our bodies we die as Mm -hmm. our bodies I we have no other options and Mm -hmm. they kind of you can see them going oh oh you know what I mean and then that's when I realized that people think it's some sort of innate they so often they think it's kind of gay part two it's gay 2.0 if you follow me Mm. and that all those gay children were treated so badly in other generations and now we've got a second chance and this chance Mm -hmm. is to teach and support and help the the trans students who are just like gay people frankly they were born with some sort of condition it's born in the wrong body 
and now we, we can facilitate their transition. I honestly think most teachers and counsellors I work with come from that that place as opposed to the, they don't seem to me to be very up on the uh, policies. They're much more culturally attuned to that way of thinking. And I, I don't think it's a uh, I don't think it's an accurate way of understanding gender. Yeah, and frankly, I mean, part of the reason that we're so concerned is there may be a possibility that the young people identifying as trans might indeed be gay. And because oh, yeah. they're struggling to accept that about themselves. And it's very common to have kind of maybe like less than typical gender experiences if you are a gay person. And they're kind of getting subsumed by the concept of being transgender, which, like you said, I think if you buy into this idea that you could just be born in the wrong body, that's a very powerful suggestion. And, you know, it explains to the teacher or the administrator something that seems kind of hard to understand. You know, yeah. why why is this kid trying to change their entire identity, to change their body? Oh, born in the wrong body. That kind of clicks. Um, yeah. And okay. I want to I ask about, uh, I, I want to make sure we get to this. Let's say we're giving some concrete advice to teachers or counselors who have a kid questioning their gender. We talked about how to respond in a way that doesn't close the door and kind of leaves it open for exploration. Let's talk about how we would loop in the family and create a kind of support plan that is collaborative with the parents. Do you have thoughts on that? I know you do a lot of school training, so can you touch on that? I think schools are very accustomed to... um, you know, students saying, I, I'm throwing up, don't tell my parents, they'll kill me. Or I'm being Ooh. bullied, don't tell my parents, they'll take my phone away. I, yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's a well-trodden path. Yes. And I yes. think what you generally do is you don't run out and tell the parents immediately, but you do work with the student to yeah. build in a situation where you can tell the parents. Very quickly, people come in saying, but there's culturally cultural differences and often uh, this is why we can't tell, because maybe the, the, the parents are very religious or the parents are very um, culturally against, you know, gender issues or, or sexual orientation. I still think that, like, we can work with families. I, I know some people might agree, but I still think just because your family have a, a religion and they will steer you away from, for example, the Gay Straight Alliance or something like that. And you're 14 and you want to be in it. I, I don't think it is necessarily you you still have those parents. So, you you know, you have to navigate having your very religious parents and lots of people have very religious parents and they navigate it and they come out intact. So if you have a school that's very welcoming and says that we are going to tell your parents, but we're going to work with you to tell your parents and we mm-hmm. accept they're not going to accept it and you will have a place you will have a safe harbor with us you you will yeah. have but we're not going to override your 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 parents um way mm-hmm. of being because they've chosen to 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 raise you in a certain way and when you're 18 you'll be able to live the life you choose you will be free so we're going to keep you we're going to educate you we're going to make sure that you have places to go you can go to the counselor every day every week you can you know to kind of manage your distress in living with very religious parents but unless they're actually hurting you and then we call social services we don't have to act as if it's it's so very dreadful to, mm-hmm. to have religious parents lots of people have religious parents and mm-hmm. they love their parents but they mm-hmm. say oh they're they're very old fashioned it's okay, yeah. yeah. I believe. 
And, and I think the much more common scenario, at least in my experience, is that the young people, due to kind of maybe information they've been getting online or kind of scary stories they've read on the internet, they presume their parents are going to yeah. be very rejecting. Sorry, and yeah. these are actually kids that are not from necessarily yeah. super religious. And even for the families that I've worked with who are religious, they're like, we go to church, but our church is gay friendly and trans friendly. <laughs> like these are not extremists, right. you know? Um, so I think in, in that case, it's, it's very important to help the child kind of like reality test their concerns. And I, you know, I remember working in a school, a lot of kids would say that exact line, like, if you tell my parents they're going to kill me, and it's like, it turns out, no, your mom's going to come into the office with us and she's going to tear up because she didn't realize you were cutting yourself or she didn't realize yeah. you were having this trouble. She's and she's going to gonna do- ask you how yeah. she can help. Like, it's yeah. usually not nearly as punitive as a child imagines. And often, maybe, not often, sometimes they're going to disagree. That That's yeah. okay. You're now an adolescent. You're starting to individuate. You're starting to live a life where you don't quite agree with some of your parents' values. That's okay. No, no, mm-hmm. that's all right. That's perfectly fine. The school doesn't have to come in and save you and create this dysfunctional triangulation right. just because people disagree. You can jog along. This is perfectly fine. I do want to talk a little bit more about because it's such a I, I find a lot of schools aren't aware of what you talk about, the internalized homophobia. And this could be a lesbian mm-hmm. who hates being a lesbian and doesn't want to be a lesbian and ends up transing to being a boy to avoid her sexual orientation. That can be yeah. a real jaw-dropping, penny-dropping moment for a lot of schools where they think, I didn't think of that. I could be intruding on a sexual awakening. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, actually, you go in too mm. fast, you could definitely be intruding on a sexual awakening. And we, in schools and in society, were very uneasy about how to handle a sexual awakening in an adolescent. And so if the child is very often almost prudish how dare you talk about my sexuality yes i know i came out as a lesbian never mention that again you Mm. can only talk about my gender and don't you dare Mm. ever bring it up well i'm not saying any student and no school teacher needs to jump in the counselor doesn't need to jump in they do need to clock it as the adult in the room that there could be more going on than is the presenting issue Uh, another thing i find that is really important for uh, teachers and counselors to know is the likelihood for this child, if they haven't pre- presented as a as a a child, maybe from from early. I always talk about this early onset, which is somebody like me. I was three or four and I was a boy. The whole town knows it. It's not secretive and it's very loud. That's one type. And they're very often, you know, gay or lesbian or bisexual. Then there's another type. There's a new cohort. And you schools all knew the know, all know the new yeah. cohort because they've come into your schools and they weren't. You worked as in the school 10, 15 years ago. They yeah. weren't there. So there's the new yeah. cohort that were never there before. And very often this new cohort are highly vulnerable. They might be undiagnosed autism. They might have undiagnosed eating disorder. They might have diagnosed autism Mm -hmm, or anxiety mm -hmm, or ADHD. mm -hmm. The likelihood of comorbidities and coexisting conditions is really quite high high. with these. They're called late onset, as in they Mm -hmm. didn't show. uh, And maybe, you know, some of the early onset certainly have it as well. So I shouldn't just say that. But it's a red flag. If you if a child comes to you and they've never before presented with gender issues and they suddenly come in full on. And you realize that there's a huge amount of computer activity 
shaping mm-hmm. this because their language is suddenly incredibly adult and very complex and you're kind yeah. of looking thinking what is going on yes you're right your instinct is right as a professional who works with teenagers that there is more going on there's a huge online community that is really encouraging this and there's a tendency for very vulnerable teenagers who are unhappy who've had a traumatic event who might very like the likelihood of autism is high high yeah with this community and not only that it could be adhd it could be disorder it could be anxiety there Mm -hmm. are other conditions so if you don't know all those things you're not seeing the full student you're just Mm -hmm. seeing one thing and not seeing the holistic view so it's really important that teachers and counselors are aware of that yeah this is this is such a big topic and we're going to be returning to this school's question a lot. We've already conducted several interviews with uh, important school administrators, school principals, other professionals in education. And we think it's going to really we're trying to build a, a robust kind of resource list yeah. for people in schools. I think for now, this is a good place to leave it off. If if there are teachers or school counselors who watch this or listen to this and you have specific questions for us, please leave them in the comments. We often kind of reflect back on some of the comments on our YouTube channel and try to build full episodes off of those. And if you are interested in joining our listener community, we answer specific Q&As within that platform. So you can go to uh, widerlenspod.com and click on listener community there. And we, we hope that this is kind of uh, going to add to this, this information that will be really valuable as many school professionals realize that just affirmation only doesn't seem to be the right solution. Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.